In both unit test and PyTest, when a test function hits a failing assert, the test stops and is marked as a failed test. What if you want to keep going and check more things? There are a few ways. One of them is subtests. Python's unit test introduced subtests in Python 3.4. PyTest introduced support for subtests with changes in PyTest 4.4 that allowed a plugin called PyTest subtests to work. Subtests are still not really used that much, but really, what are they? When could you use them? And more importantly, what should you watch out for if you decide to use them? That's what Paul Gansel and I will be talking about today. This episode of Test and Code is brought to you by ConfigCat and by Reuven Learner's weekly Python exercise and by listeners like you that support the show through Patreon. Thank you. Welcome to Test and Code, Python testing for software engineers. Thanks for coming on the show. And you even sent me a thing to, your name is not difficult. It's just Gansel, Paul Gansel, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know why some people tend to think that L-E at the end is pronounced like Lee, which is why when that show Castle was on the air, I would always pronounce it Sastly. Really? Just as a joke, because people will say Gansley. Okay. So if your last name was like, if your name was Frank Castle and someone was like, is this Frank Sastly? <laughs> That's funny. You're one of the core Python people. Uh, yeah, as of somewhat recently, just last year. Okay. Core Python developer, and you mostly are working with, in that capacity, around, um, oh, I just had it, the daytime stuff? or Yeah, yeah, I've been working on daytimes. My, my latest big initiative has been uh, PEP 615, which is adding the INA time zones to the standard library. So instead of you having to pull in uh, dateutil.tz or... I still don't think you should do this even before I add PEP 615, but PyTZ, you can just do like import zone info and then be able to just access whatever time zones are available on your computer for like, I don't know, the entire history of the daytime module there. Actually, up until like Python 3.1 or so, there were just no concrete time zone implementations at all. Even if you wanted UTC, you had to write your own time zone. So once we add this INA time zones, I think we're pretty covered for all the kinds of time zones everyone, like most people would want to see. Okay. There's a whole bunch of like extra packages built on top of uh, Python for dealing with time zones and date times and stuff like that. Are those all still necessary or less necessary now? I think it depends on what you're using them for. Like, for example, DateUtil is a library that I maintain, and that has time zone implementations. I think most of that, that still has some like niche use cases. Like if you have like iCalendar type time zones, you can use DateUtil for that. I don't really think anyone does use that. PyTZ, I think probably it almost doesn't need to exist now because I have this whole blog post on it called PyTZ, the fastest foot gun in the West about why it's not super, it's somewhat dangerous to use PyTZ because people often use it wrong. And that's one of the reasons why I think even the maintainer of PyTZ commented on PEP 615 that he's going to be happy to be able to sort of retire PyTZ and say, hey, you should really be using the standard library time zones. Okay. For things like Pendulum and Arrow, those are really sort of more, they're trying to improve things about the ergonomics of 
daytime. And so I wouldn't see those as being supplanted by this. I don't personally use them, but I also have spent an enormous amount of time understanding and working with uh, Python daytimes. So I understand that my perspective on what is easy to use may be somewhat skewed. Yeah, but I actually wanted to talk to you about subtests. And uh, this is, um, I'm smiling in the background because you brought, <laughs> this is amazing. So the, the, the prep work that you've done to get ready this for this podcast, I think uh, is probably like the, um, the number one uh, prep work. Uh, you get like gold star or something. You've even written a, a blog post about it ahead of time so that we can link to it and refer to it and everything. And it's actually like a really awesome uh, discussion of subtests. So that's cool. Yeah. How did this start? You, I think it was some comment on Twitter that you were like liked subtest or something. Is that right? Yeah. I, I really started using subtests when I was working on CPython because subtests are pretty much the only avenue for test parameter JSON that's available in unit test. And the standard library doesn't use PyTest. Normally I just use PyTest and I use PyTest.mark.parameterize and things are great. I started using subtests because I that wasn't available. And then I realized that it had all these kinds of other uses and I started to miss it when I was using PyTest in my you know normal other open source work. I was very excited when I saw that the developers of PyTest had added a plugin called PyTest Subtests that adds subtest functionality into PyTest. And I think you were on Twitter talking to the episode you did about PyTest plugins. And I sort of commented offhand, like, oh, hey, you didn't talk about PyTest Subtests, which is, you know, super great. It brings this awesome feature to unit test. Then, of course, you uh, made me have to justify my opinion, which prior to that was just a vague aesthetic feeling like, oh, I should be using these subtests more. Thank you, ConfigCat, for sponsoring this episode. ConfigCat is a feature flag service. It has a central dashboard where you can toggle your feature flags visually. You can hide or expose features on your application without redeploying. You can set target rules to allow you to control who has access to new features. Easily use flags in your code with ConfigCat libraries for Python and nine other platforms. Get builds out faster, test in production, and do easy rollbacks. Release new features with less risk and release more often. With ConfigCat's simple API and clear documentation, you'll have your initial proof of concept up and running in minutes. Train new team members in minutes also, and you don't have to pay extra for team size. With the simple UI, even product managers can use it effectively. Whether you are an individual or a team, you can try it out with their forever free plan. Or get 35% off any paid plan with special code test and code, all one word. Release features faster with less risk with ConfigCat. Check them out today at ConfigCat.com. Long, long time ago, I did a lot of research trying to figure out to compare unit test and PyTest. It wasn't good enough for me to just say, hey, one's cool, let's just start using it. Compared them a lot. And one of the things that I was excited about with, with the PyTest support for unit test subtests is it was the one thing that unit test could do that PyTest didn't support for a long time. So before the PyTest subtest plugin, you can run a unit test with that has subtests in it, but the behavior is wrong. So without the plugin, what happens is it just like it stops if if there's a failure it it uh, just stops and it acts like a normal uh, t- 
test failure and it doesn't keep going. If everything passes, it'll merrily go through and pass everything just fine. But the reason why I am interested in this plugin is that, is that now with that, PyTest fully supports all of unit test features. So it behaves a little different, but it actually, I don't know if it behaves different. I haven't, I haven't checked recently, but it, um, if you write, write a unit test that uses subtests, you can, you can run it with PyTest. But then along with that, not only that, there's like a, you don't have to write unit tests if you want to use subtests. With the plugin, you can do like a subtest.test and it acts like a subtest within, within a PyTest test. But they're weird and a lot of people don't like them. So you said you got into them because unit test doesn't have parameterization and you could use them that way. So they are a way to kind of loop or you have multiple tests that keep and keep going. So what's the, it's this idea of uh, one test per or one assert per test sort of thing, right? Do you try to adhere to the one assert per test rule then? So, yeah, I mean, I'm not a super, like I'm not doctrinaire about it. So, but, but I, th- I think it is a good heuristic for how to design your tests. And I think I should clarify, like I would consider multiple assert statements to be a single assert if they're basically testing one property, right? It's just the, like if you could write a function that says assert X and then X is some meaningful quality of the object that you're testing, I think it still makes sense to be able to just sort of inline that. But given that caveat, I do think it makes sense to try and keep to one assert per test just because it uh, it's nice to keep it logically separated in case you want to run you know small subsets of your tests or if you want to just look at it also helps to identify the source of a bug by looking at the pattern of failures. Yeah. That's probably the more common use. I do think the subtests help a lot with that, and they actually help with it more than just in the sense of test parameterization, right? So with PyTest, you use this decorator where you will enumerate all your cases, and you decorate the function, and then it passes each of the parameters to the function. It runs one test per element in the list of test cases. With subtests, you have one test, and then you can just mark a small section of it as just another test. And I think you're right that it's weird in the sense that uh, it has a whole bunch of behaviors that you're not really expecting when you're thinking about writing a test to, um, when you're thinking about handling a test, right? Like, so it gets a little fuzzy what a test is. So sometimes you could use it you know, for doing something, like I said, where you're testing multiple properties and they're, you know, essentially the same property. So I'm probably going to keep going back to the well of daytime and time zone tests as my examples, because I've just been writing an enormous amount of time zone code recently, trying to get this PEP 615 off the ground. So for example, if I'm testing the TZ name attribute or the TZ name function, which tells you at a given date time, give me like EST versus EDT. And I'm also testing the UTC offset function, right? So if I want to get EST plus 500, you know, I need to call two different functions. But really, that's sort of one function, right? Because all you're doing is you're figuring out which set of rules applies, and then each of those functions under the hood just has to look it up in a table or something. So you could consider that to be one property of the test, right? Does it select the right offsets? Or you could consider it multiple different properties of the object that need testing, right? Are you, because you're testing separate functions. So I sort of do a mix of like putting those separate things under sub under subtests or just having them be regular tests. Yeah. You know, I think I mostly do it 
based on how likely it is that they're going to independently fail? The normal way you fail a test is by asserting, and and assert also has that other behavior that it doesn't continue afterwards. So within a subtest block, you still only get one. The first assert will stop your execution. If you want to have multiple checks, they have those multiple checks need to be. If you want them all run, they need to be in different subtest regions or subtest uh, contexts. However, an interesting thing that you brought up within your article was sometimes you're doing the same, even with parameterization, you're doing the same setup to get ready to check something. And that might be time consuming. And to be able to then go and run multiple sub things that you're checking, whether they're really aspects of the same test or the same behavior, or even if they're just different things you need to test, but with all the exact same setup, there is some, I think it's perfectly reasonable to have those be separate subtests. And within support that we have now for subtests, they kind of show up in the output as separate tests also. It isn't like they're completely hidden away. You even brought up that there's, um, you possibly could put, like, let's say if you're having a parameterized test and you want to have some initial work that's done and then do all these different parameterizations that to try to have some shared work around a parameterization, there isn't a fixture, what do they call it, uh, scope. There's not the right, correct scope that says just around this test and do it once for all parameterizations. I think it's something that is known because there'd there'd be a great need for that. But even if we had that with MPyTest, it still is, like you said, it's pretty clean to have the setup code just right there at the top of the test and then go into the subtests. So there's lots of aspects of testing that maybe there's hard, you know, there's some weirdness around subtests. There's like one per test sort of thing or whatever. There's lots of rules of thumbs around testing to make clean code. But the real answer is you've got to have maintainable tests. And if using subtests for maintainable tests work and they help, then awesome. The thing that I am a little leery about is that you really ought to not, you kind of have to jump in and become an expert at subtests just to use them. Don't you think it's hard to be a casual subtest user? Uh, well, I think it depends. I, I mean, I think in some ways, the, like your use case with the, I guess for some background for people who aren't like super, super Brian fans uh, and haven't been following all the, the little nuances. But one of the bigger issues that you would come across with subtests is the notion of counting the test is weird. So if you're looking at numbers of tests passing or failing, I go into details about it in the article and then even that just links out to a whole bunch of, of other bugs and stuff where it's just not super straightforward to say how many tests failed. Was it just the top level test or was it any of the subtests? But you know, once you get past that, it's really, in my opinion, a pretty straightforward concept with the main difference being that it's so rarely done that it's just not super well supported in a lot of tools. So I would say if it was as well supported as parameterized tests, I don't think you'd have to be super expert in it, right? I mean, you can identify, if everyone said the way you parameterize tests is that you write a list of test cases in your test function, and then you just loop over it, and then you specify which sections go into what tests. I think people would get that. I think there's a little bit, there are some other use cases that are less straightforward to think of, like the one you mentioned with the, the setup, because people might be thinking in terms of calling the setup function or setup class or something like that. Yeah. 
But I think once you know about those use cases, again, it, it's fairly easy to use, right? Like, I, it is pretty easy to use. It's it, right. I guess you can you can be a fairly novice user and just throw that in, and it doesn't look weird. I mean, if you ran across it, it wouldn't be surprising. You wouldn't have to. I mean, if you were reading somebody somebody new to subtests, I don't think they'd be confused about what it was. I mean, they probably uh, someone new to the to your tests are probably going to be much more confused about how fixtures work than they are about subtests. And yet, I'm a big proponent of fixtures. I think they're great and super useful. So, I mean, I think the bar is the bar is pretty low, and subtests uh, clears it pretty pretty easily. And the counting works better than it did at first. So, I'm not sure. If I just had a had tried it a little too early, so one of the things that I tried, I tried it right away because I was super excited about them, and I also use tests with uh, the JUnit XML output plugin, and are piping that to, or however you hook it up, to have uh, Jenkins read those XML files to see that there's which tests pass and fail and how many ran. The issue right at first was that it was possible to get a a fail count larger than the number of tests. That's since been fixed because with the JUnit plugin now, the number of tests that you have, it equals, as far as I can tell, in like playing with it, it looks like it equals the number of subtests you have plus one for the test total because if every place failed, that's how many failures you'd get. So it looks like for the JUnit XML plugin, they, that's how they are counting. So a test, one test with uh, three subtest sections or something would count as four tests in the JUnit output. And, for, and that is good because if I when I tried it right away, I would get like more failures than tests and uh, it would break. Uh, the JUnit plugin or the Jenkins plugin would reject it, which makes sense. I wouldn't know what to do with that. The passes and fails added up. Pass, fail, skip, and error should add up to be about what the total is. There's other formats. That's a completely different topic, though, is that I'm annoyed that I can't map the uh, PyTest output directly to Jenkins yet because the xfail and xpass don't map very well. I don't I don't know about those sorts of exports, but I, I will say that there's probably still some work to be done, or maybe it's just education of like the users and what these are supposed to say, because it was prompted by things that you've said in the past to look into this. And I did notice that it's a little weird when you run unit tests, just pure unit tests with no pie test. Uh, if you have two tests and they each have three subtests and all of the subtests fail, it'll say ran two tests, failures six. And then like if you run it on pie test, for each passing test, it'll say it counts each test function as a test in terms of passes, but it counts each subtest as a failure or a skip in terms of failures and skips. So, like the number of passes plus failures plus skips in the little summary at the very bottom that you get does not always add up to be the same number. That's a, I guess, a, something to be aware of if you're relying on that number. Yeah, but I mean, I think. That's probably for humans, and it's like if you're looking at it, you're not going to be terribly confused. You're probably going to, if you have zero failures, you don't really care. And if you do have failures, you're probably much more concerned with the contents of the failure than with the number of of things that failed. Yeah. I guess I can say that just to jump back to this idea of the setup and resource thing, I will say that I think that there are, it's interesting now that I'm thinking more because, you know, you say I did all this preparation, but really I just 
threw out a, a blog post last night and uh, stayed up a little later than I should have. <laughs> Sorry about you that. Know, let, I, no, no, it's that's it's it's really on me. I'm I'm sure you would have been happy if I just came in and uh, went off the cuff. But as I've digested it a little more, I'm, I'm realizing that the idea of having a little bit of a, a nice, exp, you know, like some some expensive setup, right in your test function, and then iterating over it, and then this other idea that I, or at least another pattern that I identified as being useful for subtests, which is if you want to probe the state of a system as it evolves are actually sort of two sides to the same coin, right? So the first idea would be if you have something that's expensive to acquire, right? You, you have to like load an entire database and then you want to query five things about it. It seems fine to do that with a single sort of function scoped, sort of function scoped action there, as long as the resource that you're acquiring is immutable, right? If it's a database that you can't write to, then you're just going to read it, have it in memory, do a bunch of stuff to it, and then release it as soon as the function is done. On the other hand, if you have something mutable, like the example I give is this is this cache. The the zone info cache is very important in the in PEP 615. And I want to do something that populates the cache, and then I want to try and hit the cache from different angles, right? And each time there's a potential that I'm going to mutate the state of that cache, right? Like something, so I construct a zone info file and then I dump it to a pickle and then I load it from a pickle and I expect that the thing that I loaded from the pickle should be the same object that I created from the regular constructor, right? So I can test that those two things are the same. But then the question is when I loaded it from the pickle, is it possible that I disturbed the cache, right? That I created a new object, entered it into the cache and then returned the old object. And so I've now mutated the cache. So what I wanna do is I wanna do the exact same test, but then immediately after that, I wanna get another one from the pickle or another constructor and then test that that's the same. So in that case, I have something that I'm mutating and I wanna know different aspects of how it evolves over time and again, that's having subtests allows me to save all that setup because otherwise I would have to like write the whole first part of the test and then copy paste that whole first part of the test and add one more assertion and then copy paste that whole thing. Yeah. So I think those two are two sides of the same coin and they're one of the more useful patterns for using subtests in a way that's not just, hey, you can also do parameterization without the pytest.mark.parameterize.decorator. I definitely agree. And I also, the notion of having um, even like a workflow test, we often talk about a good test pattern of not really, a. I don't really say one assert per test because I often have tons of asserts, but they're often, I try to have them, like you said, focused at the end where I'm focusing on uh, probing a different properties of the result that I'm looking for. There's other workflow tests that don't follow a given when then or a a range act assert pattern, which are just like doing a whole bunch of stuff in series and along the way doing asserts and checking for things. The warning around workflow tests is it's really painful if you have a lot of those because if they're all breaking, you, you they don't tell you much when they're breaking. But when they're passing, they tell you a lot. They tell you that a whole bunch of stuff is working right. And oftentimes, it's not a rule of thumb to try to, I don't recommend people have most of their tests like this. But having a, like a smoke test through a, that does a whole bunch of stuff through a system that checks to make sure everything's right. And it's an incredibly efficient way to do some testing. And subtests allow you to do that to be able to to say, 
Well, I mean, you can do a certs also. I guess one of the issues is with subtests, you'd have to be careful to do uh, workflow tests with subtests because they're only valid for things that you really, you're okay with continuing on with because the control flow will go past the uh, subtest block and keep going even if it fails. Even if it raises an exception, that's another important notion, right? Like if you, it will swallow exceptions and keep going. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I forget that that's not just common knowledge. Yeah, so yeah, an assert or any exception will cause a test to fail, but it'll also get eaten by subtests then. Is that true for unit tests also? Yeah, it's true for unit tests. Okay. Because I, mean, I think the way it works is it just catches every exception, including assertion errors. And then instead of doing anything with that, it just says, it just marks it as a failure and then keeps going. You don't learn to write readable, maintainable, idiomatic Python overnight, or even in a course. Just as you need practice to become fluent in human language, you need practice to become fluent in Python. Now in its fourth year, Weekly Python Exercise is a family of courses that give you such practice. Here's how it works. On Tuesday, you receive a problem with PyTest tests. On the following Monday, you receive a detailed solution and explanation. And in between, you compare notes and solutions with other students and get extra help during live monthly office hours. It's run by Reuven Lerner, a full-time Python trainer. New cohorts start every month or two. Learn more, including samples and schedule, at weeklypythonexercise.com and become a more fluent Python developer today. One of the other couple issues, these are big problems for me that you brought up in your article is that uh, xfail and stop on fail both don't work with uh, subtests. That's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. No, it really is. I mean, well, so, okay. So I'll say that they don't work with the PyTest subtests plugin. It sounds like basically my whole article, I think you could replace most of the stuff about subtests with your PyTest check plugin and almost all the same stuff would occur. I mean, the patterns might be slightly different. And it sounds like you got PyTest check working with those functions, right? Yeah, it's a very, the PyTest check implementation i started with a really horrible implementation and then something that i thought made sense of just keeping a list of all failures it quickly became obvious well slowly for me but it was obvious to somebody contributing that just uh wrapping everything in tr a try block and kept catching any exception and then using that information to figure out what's wrong is a very clean elegant way to, to deal with it so that all that code makes sense but the code to make it deal with uh, stop on fail and x fail correctly is luckily it's only like 10 lines of code but it's the ugliest code in the plugin so i'm not surprised that that was kind of forgotten in the pytest subtest plugin but maybe it's something that probably could be added because i know i depend on x fail and stop on fail all the time at the very least, stop on fail is, is something that I'd, I'd want to get working. Yeah. I mean, so I have a, a lightning talk that I've given a, a couple of times on XFail. So I'm, I'm a big XFail proponent. But yeah, like I, I can probably do without XFail in subtests. It's not that hard. The stop on fail stuff has been very annoying because, you know, I have in Zone Info, you know, I'm testing daytime edge cases and there are a lot of them. So I'll write one test and I'll parameterize it maybe you know, with a hundred different parameters. And then the way the stop on fail is 
broken is that it will stop on the first failure, but it considers the first failure to be the first failed test function. So if you hit a failure in something that doesn't have any subtests or, or like that has a subtest, but there's like four subtests, you'll just see four failed tests. It won't continue going on. But if you have a failure in something that has 160 subtests in it, you'll see 160 failures and it'll be really annoying. So the xfail thing, I think, is just a straight up bug that can probably be fixed fairly easily is my guess. Yeah. I haven't looked at the code. The stop on fail thing is that could be a bug. And I, I suspect that they'll at least have the like max fails equals one fail on the first failing subtest. But it is a bit of an issue where if you want to say, all right, I want at most three failures to show up. Do you want three subtests failures or do you want three top level test functions? Like now, like this is one of the main problems with subtest support in other, with introducing the concept of subtests after everyone has already established the nomenclature for what is a test and started building UIs around it, yeah. which is like, now we have this like fuzzier thing of, of how, how many tests did I run? How many tests do I want to allow to fail? And I think that's probably going to be a UI issue that PyTest subtest is going to have to work out, but I trust that they will. And maybe worst case scenario, they have to add a max dash subtest fails and then we're back in business, right? Yeah. I have been heartened when I wrote this article to see that most of the issues that I was finding, like the things that feel like they could be blockers are just like bugs because PyTest subtest has 50 stars and very little adoption so far. Yeah. Was it Bruno that worked on it? I can't remember. I think so. It was a little bit cringy that we were going to talk about it on the podcast. Because <laughs> I hope he's all right with it because uh, I wanted to talk about it. I'm like thrilled to talk about it because I like it. It's interesting. There's uh, issues around it that need fixed, but it's still cool. And there's hardly anybody that know about it. So I, uh, I was actually thrilled that you knew, knew enough to talk about it. It's going to be cool. My take on it would be a subtest with three subtests counts as four in the uh, XML output. And okay, that seems reasonable. So let's just, I guess, maybe just say that that's what it is. That would be my druthers is to just say every, a test itself counts as a test and any subtest counts as a test also for the counting reason. And the reason why it's important isn't just output. It's things like you said of how many failures. If, if you want to, if you say stop after three failures, it gets weird though, because, but I guess that's the, that's the same with parameterization, right? So if you say, if you've got four parameterization and you say stop after two failures, it's going to stop after the second parameterized failure. So it's really just a matter of communicating or providing a way for users to communicate their needs or their desires. Yeah. Because as long as users know what it means to stop after a certain number of tests and, if you know, I think most people probably care about stopping after a certain number of subtests because they're just trying to limit the back scroll, yeah. or maybe they're trying to. But you know, I guess there could be some people who are like, each one of these tests is very expensive, so I want to stop after the first one, but each of the subtests is very cheap, so I only want to stop after the first top level test. So you know, I can imagine there being use cases for for both stop after X failures being one or the other. Probably the more common use case is going to be the one where you stop after one text, one subtest failure. But I think it's really just a UI question of how these things get get included. I guess the other thing that you have to talk about or that you have to think about when you're talking about 
counting is, I think this is something you pointed out that's still pretty weird, which is that at least in PyTest reckoning, if you have three subtests and they all fail, if you have one test with three subtests and they all fail, you'll see one dot and four Fs, right? Because, and it'll say one passed, three failed, which is weird because it's just a test and all it has is subtests and every single one of those failed, but it still considers the top level test is passed. I personally think that the top level test should fail or should be considered failed if any of its subtests failed, right? So I'm on board with counting the top level test as one test and then all the subtests as separate tests so that for three subtests, you get four total tests. But I'm not on board with like, there was no errors that weren't in subtests. So this test passed, even though all of its subtests failed. Yeah, that and that's a weird one when... Like, for instance, I'm using, like you said, um, with a user interface or, or UI stuff on top of it. So if I'm looking at my Jenkins report and I go through and look at all of the passing, everything that passed, it's going to include tests that had failures in it. And that's weird. I don't like that. I think that should be fixed. It seems, and, yeah. and I know that it's, I think it's intentional, but I think it's a bug. I think that, I don't think that's cool. But <laughs> well, at the very least, there should probably be some way for for users to get at the information. I mean, the ideal situation would be if PyTest could report, even if it's just in a machine-readable way, the exact breakdown of like, this many subtests failed, this thing failed, this thing did not fail outside of a subtest, but it did fail in a sub, in one, but one of its subtests did fail. And then you can configure your plugins however you want. Right. Yeah, and that's I mean that's one of the reasons why uh, so xfail has a strict mode. So we can have the subtest be have a strict mode or something as well that says any failure in a subtest causes a failure the top level test to fail also. That would work. Oh, I wonder if that's why the dash x is running the whole test because it's considering it's only considering the top level test. I don't know. Possibly. Uh like you said it's only got 50 stars. And it ha- it's not that old, and there's not been a lot of attention to it. So it might be just um, it has some some kinks to work out, and that's fine. So anyway, one of the things I did not do, I have to admit, I read some of the information you sent me. I did not read your dis- dissertation. Oh, no. <laughs> Brian, you've come unprepared. Yeah, but you have a dissertation that's so cool. I know the totally tra- change of subject, but. You, this was part of your, um, you wrote a dissertation as part of your um, uh, education, right? Yeah, yeah, my PhD for grad school. Let's see, what is your PhD in? Uh, physical chemistry. I was a chemist for undergrad, and then I went to uh, UC Berkeley to study physical chemistry. And I, when I was there, I worked on um, instrumentation. So I build nuclear magnetic resonance devices. It was actually called a niche subfield called Zero Field NMR that uh, does not use superconducting magnets. So yeah, I, I would build devices and, you know, there was a surprising amount of programming in it because I was writing consoles and stuff, but it was more optics and electronics and stuff. And then when I graduated, I did two years in industry working in oil services, building inside out MRI machines that go underground. But then just being good at Python, it turns out that like you can get jobs really easily that don't require you to be near 40 ton machines all the time. So there's better work from home 
possibilities <laughs> just like slightly better yeah um, so are you working from home now oh uh, well yeah everyone's working from home <laughs> well everybody that can but right so oh yeah yeah well anyway no I, google makes me go into the office when there's not a pandemic on but there's still more work from home opportunities you know like if i work from home once a week, it's a lot easier than when I was a hardware guy and had to go in and solder things or, or run some sort of mechanical test on something. Okay. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't have a remote job right now, but you know, I live in, in New York and uh, at some point in the future, I think it would be nice. It's nice that there's an option for it. I think that the world is going to change after all of this because the company I work at was not intentionally remote. But we did have some people that worked remotely because of extenuating circumstances. And now everybody has an extenuating circumstance as to why they're working from home. And luckily I, in software, yeah, I feel very grateful that I work in software because it is is something that's possible to do this. And I have plenty of friends that are not able to, but I don't think I want to go back to having to commute for an hour and a half every day. But Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, so I got a, I have a 45 minute to an hour commute each way as well. All my friends who have apartments in Chelsea and stuff, they, they, they've got a 10 minute walk to work. And right now they're crammed in their little apartments and I've got my own full office. I'm like, haha, for this one circumstance, <laughs> I made the right choice. Yeah. Awesome. So again, I, I want to thank you for being willing to talk about subtests. There's not a lot of subtest nerds in the world. I may know all of them. <laughs> I'm not sure. Probably. Yeah. At least the Python ones, right? But I'm glad that we talked about it. I think it is something that people should consider when structuring their tests. There's there's a lot of tools available, so why not use this as well? I'll definitely link to your article because I think it's a it's an amazing introduction to, to actually not just an in, easy, a simple introduction into uh, subtests, but into some of the quirks about it as well. So. But I, I don't think it'll go away. I, it was listed as beta for a little bit, but I think I don't think it'll go away. I mean, it's not built into PyTest, right? It's just it's just a plugin right now. Right. So, you know, hopefully someone will be able to continue maintaining it. Yeah. If we can get CoreDev or someone to agree to start testing the uh, standard library with PyTest, which I do not think is terribly likely, but stranger things have happened. It would probably be close to a necessity to keep it maintained. As it is for now, I guess it could it could always the worst case scenario is there's probably always going to be the niche of people who like PyTest and are writing stuff that is eventually destined to be in the standard library. It's been very helpful for that. Since you work with the standard library, do you have to jump back and forth between unit tests and PyTest then? Yeah. I, well, also I work at Google and they use Google Test or Absel Test or whatever it's called, which is essentially unit test. Okay. So I have to jump back and forth. It's not that bad. I always feel like the when I'm using unit tests, it's a little clunky. Like, I, But I've been trying to approach it with an open mind. And I have been surprised at how well I can express things in unit tests that are more natural for me to express in PyTest. I've also been sort of trying to assemble a little the case for PyTest that I can pitch to the Google teams that make decisions about this sort of thing. So every time I go and find something hard to do in unit tests, I want to put it in my little list. And I've been really surprised at how well things like setup class and setup module and then some other stuff around context managers and the cleanup are really able to take the place of fixtures in a lot of situations that I would normally just write a fixture for and uh, 
call it a day. I still think that there's a lot of benefit to PyTest and the reporting of PyTest is great. But for the most part, writing unit tests is not a terribly different experience for me. Okay. Yeah. I find them jarringly different, but I make very heavy use. So I make very heavy use of uh, fixtures and levels of fixtures. And, and they're also, that's where I try to put most of the slow work. And I know you can sort of get away with that with setup and teardown, but with, um, you can't cross module boundaries with unit tests very easily that I know of. Anyway, maybe there's some way. So like session level fixtures, I don't know if unit test has session level. Initialize a database and have multiple test modules be able to run against it sort of thing. Couldn't you just put it in a module and then import the module? Uh, I don't know. It just still seems like the setup and teardown will probably happen. Oh, well, the teardown for the module is going to be, that's going to be tougher. Yeah. Anyway, I've got the weird, I guess it's not too much of a corner case, but working with working with hardware and uh, long times, long run times, I really care about setup and teardown times and stuff. So, so those are great. But actually, unit test isn't terrible. I, it'd be really cool if we started testing uh, core with PyTest. So I got one more question. Actually, I probably have lots. But as a core developer, you're a core developer, but you work on the Python code, right? You're not one of the C Python people? C Python is the name of the reference implementation. Yeah, I guess, right. So what I meant was a pause there some of the people that write C code that implement Python. There's not a super clear distinction between roles. Like once you're a core developer, you can I can commit anything in any module. I shouldn't do that. And I tend to defer to the experts on things. So I've mostly specialized in daytime and a couple other minor things. Uh, packaging is a big thing because I also maintain setup tools. I'm one of the maintainers of setup tools and probably the worst maintainer of setup <laughs> tools, but I am a maintainer of setup tools. So I happen to know a lot about packaging. So, but yeah, if you're asking if I write a lot of C, I write a decent amount of C because daytime is written in C and a lot of the improvements that can be made are around efficiency and things like that. Also the zone info module that I wrote for PEP 615 is also, it has a C extension. It's it's actually a very interesting testing topic that maybe we can address at a different time, but there's this thing called PEP 399, which says that all new modules in added to Python core that have an accelerated C extension, like date util, zone info, pretty much all the stuff that is like fast and in the standard library must also have an equivalent Python, pure Python implementation that can be used in place of the C extension if you can't build the C extension. So to write PEP 6.15 with a C extension, I had to write the entire thing in Python and then write the entire thing in C as well. Yeah. And they have to do the exact same thing. I mean, the spirit of it is that they should do the exact same thing in all situations. In practice, the way it's worded is just that the tests, all the tests that pass for the C implementation must also pass for the pure Python implementation. But if someone reports a bug to me that says like, hey, the C implementation of Python, uh, of daytime does this and the pure Python one does this, what do we do? Like we have to harmonize it. And that's useful for, I think, other implementations of Python like PyPy because they don't get the same advantages from the C extensions because PyPy is a, is a, is JIT compiled. So I think they mainly use just the pure Python implementation of daytime. And the only use they have for the C extension is that 
they have some wrappers that support C extensions. So they have to wrap the C API to make calls into the pure Python hmm. side. You can't make use of hypothesis either, right? That because well, <laughs> language summit is coming up uh, next week, and uh, Zach Hatfield Dobbs is pitching the use of hypothesis for Pep six fifteen. I've been heavily using hypothesis, and I think we're pitching that we should be testing the standard library because I, I think that came about because when I was writing something that eventually someone found a segfault bug in one of my daytime editions, the from ISO format method. And I was like, well, I wrote hypothesis tests for this before it got merged in, but this was enough of a corner case that it didn't get hit in the first couple of runs. And if I had merged the hypothesis tests and they were running on PR, within a week I would have found this and it would have never hit a release, yeah. but I had to throw them away. So right now, Zach has, he's maintaining a separate repository with tests, just like hypothesis tests, just for the standard library. And I think the plan is to pitch that this should be some official project, whether it's goes into the CPython repository and we run it on PR, or we just add some build bots that, you know, once a week run the full suite or it's run yeah. continuously in fuzzing mode. That kind of test of run, run two implementations and throw random stuff at it and make sure that they both get the same output. That's like, I mean, that's like easy hypothesis test to, to put together. So Oh, yeah. It already found one bug. I, I did that exact same thing and, and it found a bug when I was trying to merge it. Oh, nice. Okay. Interesting. Well, um, hopefully we get uh, hypothesis and and that would be a good reason to pull PyTest in too because hypothesis this hypothesis plus PyTest works really well. Yeah, it certainly works better than than hypothesis with unit test, but you know unit test it works okay. There's just a couple weirdnesses like the setup function doesn't get run every time on every hypothesis test and there's some other things subtests with hypothesis are just like completely broken, but with hypothesis and PyTest subtests, it does work. Okay. So yeah, I think it'd be cool to to talk more about your work with the C extension testing, C extensions testing, and testing with the uh, PyTest or Python core stuff. That'd be a great topic. Also, be interesting. Cool. Sure. Well, let me know when uh, people are uh, who who've listened to this have had enough time to that they'll uh, they, they won't be sick of me. Uh, uh, we I, I we won't be already, sick of you. We've already gone an hour. Huh? Plus, you, you're a better writer than I am. I, I'm a little jealous of that. I mean, you said you wrote this last night, but it's a great article. I do have one little bit of advice. If you're, it's just anecdotal. May not work for everybody, but I went through the process of trying to convince my work environment to adopt PyTest. So my process was to write a book on PyTest and then ask, and it worked really well. Just saying. <laughs> Do you think this will work if I write a novel, like a science fiction novel? I would love it. I don't know if it would work for you, but it definitely would benefit me to have you write a science fiction novel that had PyTest in it. Yeah, I think it'll be, I, I'm already seeing it. Aliens come, they, the, all their stuff runs on unit test. They've got patches, core and unit test. And the only way to stop them from taking over the world is to convert Google's code base over to using PyTest. So as soon as that wins like a Hugo award and a, a Pulitzer prize, I suspect that they will, that they'll be like, you know what? We got to do it now as a reference to the book. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. We'll get started on that. All right. 
I'll, I'll do it first thing Monday morning. Yeah, and you know this probably won't come out for a couple of weeks. So if you've got if you want to do a landing page to try to get uh, people waiting for the release, um, we can link to it. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Perfect. this was a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Great, cool, thanks. Thank you, Paul. I really enjoyed geeking out about subtests with you. Thank you, ConfigCat, for sponsoring. ConfigCat.com feature flag service lets you release features faster with less risk. Thank you, Reuven, for sponsoring. Reuven Learners, weeklypythonexercise.com will help you become a more fluent Python developer. Thank you to listeners that support through Patreon. Join them by going to testandcode.com support. All those links and more links, including Paul's awesome article on subtests, are in the show notes at testandcode.com slash 111. If you do start using subtests, I'd love to hear about your experience with it. That's all for now. Now go out and test something.